From the silver screen to the printed page to the woods behind your house, incredible creatures are everywhere. For as long as I can remember, monsters have populated the landscape of my imagination. As a kid, I wanted to learn as much as I could about these legendary figures, and it turns out, I still do. I'm Mark Mansky, and this is Monster Study Group. Welcome to Monster Study Group, Episode 1. Thanks for joining me today. Right away, I want to invite you to follow the show on Instagram at Monster Study Group. There's an underscore between each word. And on Twitter at Monster Study. If you enjoy the old-timey fun of writing emails, send your message to monsterstudygroup at outlook.com and eventually you'll be able to send a voice message to the show once I get that all figured out. Also, if you're not aware, I currently record another show with my pal Seth Breedlove called Monsteropolis, the official podcast of Small Town Monsters, an independent documentary film production company responsible for titles such as Mothman of Point Pleasant, On the Trail of Bigfoot, Momo the Missouri Monster, and many others. Monsteropolis is a show examining legends, anomalies, and monsters, and is available just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's amazing to think that we're closing in on 100 episodes, but here we are. To learn more, please visit smalltownmonsters.com. All right, what I want to do with this first episode is two things. Explain how I got here and why I'm launching this podcast now. Future episodes will be a little more orderly in the sense that there will be segments devoted to news and notes, book recommendations, reactions to TV series and films, and some discussion of collectibles, of course. But this first episode is kind of a prelude to all that. This is the story of how a child of the 1970s and early 80s became a bona fide monster kid. I turned five years old in 1977, which for some odd reason is the first year I can remember knowing what year it was. Maybe that's because of this little movie you might have heard of that came out that year called Star Wars. I have very specific memories of my dad taking me to see Star Wars at a theater near Detroit, Michigan, being crammed into the front row at a sold-out showing, and just being transported by what I saw, especially the entrance of Darth Vader and the seemingly friendly Wookiee Chewbacca. And then the action figures, the tie-in comics, the Halloween costumes, the soundtrack albums, the pillowcases. You get the idea. It was a magic time. Not only did we have great monster TV options in the Detroit area, I was not fully aware of how fortunate I was. With horror hosts showing King Kong and Mighty Joe Young and Universal Monsters with regularity, but the Detroit market 
was also one of a handful of Midwestern cities getting recent Godzilla movies in the theater. And my dad took me to those two. Godzilla vs. the Bionic Monster, later known as Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, and Godzilla on Monster Island, known later as Godzilla vs. Gigan, were movies I saw as a little kid the way you're supposed to see them, on a big old screen, in the dark, nice and loud. Now, I did chicken out of a viewing of the King Kong remake after weeks and weeks of buildup. The less said about that, the better. (laughs) Maybe my dad can fill you in on that story when I have him on a future episode. But for the most part, giant monsters and Godzilla in particular were my thing. Without being too analytical, these movies just made me happy and fanned the flames of my imagination in a way that led to drawing and writing and pretending, setting up elaborate Lincoln Log structures so that I could destroy them with appropriate Godzilla-like seriousness of purpose. And did I mention that a Japanese superhero television show called Ultraman was syndicated and running on Detroit TV at the same time. A show in which a giant silver and red defender of the earth fights a different giant monster each week. It would have been far stranger if I had left Detroit without an appetite for giant monsters, bombastic music, spaceships, transforming superheroes, and miniature metropolitan destruction. But that's not all. At the very same time, there was a Saturday morning TV show called Bigfoot and Wild Boy, in which an orphan who had uh, gone down in a plane crash when his parents killed was rescued by a Bigfoot raised by him, and the two of them went on various adventures, solved crimes, and basically seemed to be having the time of their lives. I couldn't help but wonder, was there anything to this Bigfoot figure? As an early reader, I found my answers at our local library, where I came across a book entitled On the Track of Bigfoot by a children's author named Marion T. Place. There too, I still have vivid memories of trying to read the first chapter and understand all of the references to the landscape and different references to topologies and so forth that for the most part went over my head. But what I didn't forget was the references to a seven to eight foot tall, hairy, man-like creature that seemed to take up residence in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. I was completely gobsmacked by this idea that there could be this sort of monster alive in the very country where I lived, albeit far to the Northwest. 
My idea of that changed a little bit when Marion T. Place followed up on the track of Bigfoot with a new book entitled Bigfoot All Over the Country, which very quickly disabused me of the notion that Bigfoot was safely ensconced in the forests of Washington and Oregon and Northern California, and that he could, in fact, exist anywhere. Ohio, Indiana, yes, even Michigan. Not only did I run across that book, but I also came into possession of a scholastic book called Monsters of North America by Elwood Bauman, in which I learned about a movie entitled The Legend of Boggy Creek. It sounded unbelievably entertaining. It was set in Falk, Arkansas, a very small rural town that was beset by a creature that seemed to travel the creeks. The only problem was, how was I ever going to see this movie? This was the era just before the proliferation of the VCR. So my chances of seeing it seemed slim and none, but I had the written description of the film in Bauman's book, and I had to let that suffice. We moved away from Detroit first to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we were only there for a brief time, but something really important happened there. My local library had a copy of a book about Godzilla by a writer named Ian Thorne. And though all the pictures in it were black and white, it was the most amazing collection of Godzilla photos that I had ever seen. Not only were there photos of Godzilla and stills from the films, but there were behind the scenes production photos. Pictures of a man that I didn't realize at the time was responsible for most of these movies that had just grabbed my imagination by the neck. And there was a diagram of a set that showed how Godzilla movies were made. I have very tactile memories of poring over that book in a Fort Wayne laundromat, having just checked it out of the library and being just completely blown away by what I was looking at. I was in second grade at this time and was already writing and illustrating my own versions of Japanese giant monster movies and alien invasions. I was even invited to a young authors conference, which I didn't really know what that all entailed, but was just happy to be there. It wasn't an alien invasion story that got me to that conference, by the way. I still have those stories, and one that really makes me laugh to this day is where the alien invaders end up looking like giant carrots with arms and legs and two beady eyes. Hey, I never said these were great stories. From there, we moved to central Michigan, and though we now lived in a rural setting, my devotion to monsters 
only grew and expanded. And there were three really key things that happened during these years. Number one is that I ran across a book in the Hemlock Public Library entitled Mysterious America. The author, Lauren Coleman. The cover, a simple black and white pen and ink drawing, but it was a menagerie of crazy looking creatures and uh, killer clowns and just this menagerie of strangeness. And I couldn't put the book down. I had to have held the record of consecutive checkouts of a single book, that book being Mysterious America at the library. And years and years later, was thrilled to find a first edition that looked just like the copy that was essentially under my possession as a young boy. The second thing that was so key when we lived in Hemlock, Michigan, is that one of our local television stations out of Saginaw, Michigan, featured Godzilla Week, which is exactly what it sounds like. Every day, timed perfectly for our arrival home from school, that station would show a different Godzilla movie. Right around 3.30, 4 o'clock, so that you would come home from school, get yourself in front of the TV, watch a Godzilla movie, and then it would be time for supper. It was absolutely perfect, and I lived for those weeks. They would advertise ahead of time what movies would be on which days. And so while I was in school, I would sit there thinking about what the movie was going to be. I would probably draw pictures of that movie if I had seen it in advance or pictures of what I thought the movie should look like based on the uh, title and the uh, sentence or two descriptions that would have been in the TV guide. Just amazing. Those weeks were so exciting to me. And I would draw posters and everything else that you might expect. The third key thing that happened in Hemlock was, well, we got a VCR, video cassette recorder and player. I learned how to program it so that when there were shows on that I wanted to catch, I could set them to tape at the appropriate time and they would tape. And so it was that I opened the TV listings one day and looked, probably did a double and triple take, and saw that coming up on one of our local independent stations in the middle of the night, probably 2 or 3 a.m., was The Legend of Boggy Creek, a film that I had been hunting with as much determination as Bigfoot hunters go after the big hairy guy these days. With intense surgical precision, I set that VCR to tape at the appropriate time. And then all I could do was wait. The next day I got up and checked my work. I rewound the tape and sure enough, I had captured the legend of Boggy Creek for my own personal home viewing. And as I let that tape play, it started with the uh, black screen with the orange letters on 
the, the type saying that this is a story that is based on true events. And I just could not believe it was finally happening. I got to see the legend of Boggy Creek. And again, my world of imagination was expanded. Little did I know that one day I would be setting foot on the banks of Boggy Creek itself, but we're not quite there yet. So those were, again, really important years growing up in central Michigan, having these monsters as the uh, the backdrop and the foreground of the type of things that I thought about and rehearsed and wrote stories about and uh, got to even the Viewmaster projector and the Godzilla Marvel Comics series Viewmaster and projected those uh, frames onto my bedroom wall and wrote stories and created sound effects for all of those things. And it was the world in which I lived. And then, then I grew up. I discovered basketball and girls. And before I knew it, I was out of high school and going to college in Chicago, Illinois, and then off to the seminary to become a Lutheran pastor, graduating from there and getting married, beginning a career in the church. I was a new husband, a renter, and then a homeowner. And during all of that, the monsters kind of took a back seat. Shows like The X-Files kept the monster embers glowing. But of course, it wasn't like it had been. And then, in 2003, my son was born. There's just so much that I wanted to show him. He was maybe a couple years old when I just randomly noticed a listing for a movie on the sci-fi channel called Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All Out Attack. I was utterly confused. I had no idea that there had been a second wave of Godzilla movies that had been made in Japan, not to mention a third wave of which this was one. It wasn't a VCR at this point, it was a digital recorder, but I set it to record Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah. And in a little example of history repeating itself, I was blown away once again by an amazing blend of old school tokusatsu or special effects, miniature models and explosions and sound effects blended with modern CGI, and I couldn't believe my eyes. Godzilla was still alive. And that sparked something in me. A few years later, my family was taking a trip to a library in the Cleveland system. And by chance, we ran across a Godzilla collectibles book. 
It was written by an author named Sean Linkenback, who himself had compiled an amazing Godzilla collection beginning with posters and expanding out into all manner of action figures and associated merchandise with the big G. Near the back of this book, I found references to something called G-Fan Magazine. It appeared to be a fan-run magazine that was still being published regularly. I was surprised and hopeful. I used the first opportunity that I had to go online, which at that point was still sort of new and novel, and looked up G-Fan Magazine to see if it was still in publication and, what do you know, it was. I forget exactly how I got my hands on my first G-Fan Magazine, whether I ordered it directly from the website or got an, a back issue off of eBay, also sort of a new novel concept, but the bottom line is G-Fan Magazine came into my possession. And as part of that, I was completely amazed to learn that there was something called G-Fest. As the name suggests, it was a festival celebrating all things Godzilla and Japanese giant monsters that was held annually in Chicago. Chicago where I had gone to school. Could it be that G-Fest was still a thing? That it was still an annual celebration? Somewhat sheepishly, I looked into the viability of G-Fest, learned that it was in fact still a thing, still operational, and still enjoyed by at least hundreds of fans every year. And then I made my pitch to my wife. Let's go to G-Fest. Fortunately, what I had in my favor was the fact that we had met in Chicago. We had met in college. So that Chicago had some good connotations to begin with. She said yes. So the three of us went to our first G-Fest. We went in 2009. Kenji Sahara was the guest of honor, and Kenji Sahara has been in almost innumerable Godzilla films, special effects films. He was in Ultra Q, which was the precursor to Ultraman, Subaraya Productions' first big splash on TV. And we got to shake his hand. We got to get autographs from him and just tried to communicate to him the enjoyment that we had received from his work. And it was an amazing, very special experience. And we met like-minded people there who loved Godzilla and Ultraman and Gamera as much as we did. It was fantastic. We made every single G-Fest since 2009, until COVID-19 wiped out what would have been G-Fest 27 this summer. 
Well, back in 2009, we had an immediate visceral response to G-Fest. It was such a blast and such a rush that I felt that I had to reply to this somehow. I wanted to participate in my own way. So a couple things happened. My son and I started a blog entitled Monsterland Ohio, which still exists, uh, monsterlandohio.blogspot.com. It's sort of floating out there now. Uh, we haven't maintained it in some time, but it's there. I also got it in my head to write an article for GFAN and submit it and see what would happen. And what happened is it was published. And then a number of other articles that I wrote for GFAN were published. The next step was to volunteer at GFest. And that morphed over time from simply watching over the art room and making sure nobody tried to make off with any of the excellent artwork that was hanging there to developing programs for GFest. I started to lead a thread of the convention that was aimed at young participants, kids like I had been, and create programs that were directed right at them. That was a lot of fun. I met a lot of great people that way. Since then, my wife and I have taken over a, a area of G-Fest entitled Minya's Place, named after the son of Godzilla. It's for the the young and the young at heart to do various Godzilla-themed crafts that they can just chill out, spend some time, color some pages, make some shopping bags, create their own Godzilla posters, and essentially use their creativity to bring Godzilla to life. Now, as this is all going on, in 2011, we moved to Southeast Ohio. And in 2014, I asked my son if he wanted to attend the Ohio Bigfoot Conference. He said yes, so we did. And the three of us, including my wife, attended a VIP dinner for the Ohio Bigfoot Conference held in Cambridge, Ohio. While we were there at that dinner, we sat down next to a young man named Seth Breedlove and his father, Ronnie. We learned that we had a number of interests in common, Bigfoot being the obvious one, but also comics and giant monster movies and pursuits of that nature. I also learned that Seth was into podcasting and hosted a podcast with his brother and some of his friends about comic books. It was called Ancillary Characters. One thing led to another, and Seth invited me to come on Ancillary Characters to talk about what, at that time, was the new Godzilla film put out by Legendary Pictures. Well, I said yes, and then quickly had to play catch-up as to how do you podcast, actually? What do you need in order to podcast? What microphone would work? Do I need headphones? These were all questions that needed answers. But I answered them, went on ancillary characters, talked about Godzilla, and figured that would be it. And 
it was a cool chapter in my monster kid life. But I was surprised by what happened next. Seth invited me to join him as the co-host for a podcast that he was starting about Bigfoot. He called it Sasswhat, a podcast about Bigfoot. And together we recorded essentially a hundred episodes in which we talked about Bigfoot in various parts of the country and interviewed people who had some stake in the Bigfoot hunt, whether as active researchers, authors, filmmakers, you name it. My experience on Sasswhat led me to have enough confidence to try to start a podcast of my own. And so my son Andy and I started recording Monsterland Ohio Radio, which we build as the official podcast of monsterlandohio.blogspot.com. It was just for fun. It was just to create an outlet for us to talk about the things that we were watching and imagining, but it was a great deal of fun. And we were both shocked to start receiving mail from people who actually listen to our shows. Email, of course, but then also receiving packages, things like books, t-shirts, and mugs. It was really cool to know that there were people out there who actually cared about listening to the two of us talk about our interest in monsters. Going back to Sasswhat, what this meant is that I was also there at ground level for the creation of the production company Small Town Monsters. When Seth recruited a small group of his friends and acquaintances to begin filming Minerva Monster, I was there every step of the way in the production process and watching it unfold. It was fascinating. Fast forward a year or two, Seth continued to create new documentary films. We continued to talk about them on the Sasswhat podcast. And eventually I became involved at Seth's invitation in actually producing and working on these movies. I couldn't believe it. I was co-writing a film and then narrating it. That became Invasion on Chestnut Ridge, a documentary about strange cases reported in southwestern Pennsylvania. And then I was also narrating series that other people had created, most notably on the trail of Champ, about the Cha Lake Champlain monster uh, directed by Alexander Petikoff and released through Small Town Monsters. Not only did I co-write and narrate some of Small Town Monsters documentaries, I also began appearing on screen and was filmed talking for a series on the trail of Bigfoot and then on the trail of UFOs. Beyond that and how awesome those things were, being a part of Small Town Monsters, Sasswhat, and then ultimately Monsteropolis podcast opened some incredible doors for me. Long, long ago, I had been a serial checker outer of mysterious America 
by Lauren Coleman. Now, because of Sasswet, Monsteropolis, and Small Town Monsters, I got to talk to Lauren Coleman, the author. And not only did I get to talk to Lauren Coleman, I got to spend time with Lauren Coleman, picking him up from the airport with my son, Andy, and driving him around for a Minerva Monster conference that we hosted. And then, at Lauren Coleman's invitation, traveling to Maine for the International Cryptozoology Conference, where my friend Seth was awarded Cryptozoologist of the Year by the organization that hosted the conference. And then, two years later, Andy and I were both invited to speak at the Cryptozoology Conference in Portland, Maine. Andy talking about growing up in this milieu of monsters and cryptozoology. And I talked about the Peninsula Python, a local legend and story propagated by a local reporter. I still pinch myself. Unfortunately, I have the photos on my phone to prove that those things actually happened. Not only did we get to meet and befriend Lauren Coleman, but we also got to meet and spend time with the authors Linda Godfrey and Stan Gordon. Linda is responsible for recording and reporting The Beast of Bray Road, a very famous dogman series of sightings and encounters issuing out of extreme southeastern Wisconsin in the mid-90s. And Stan Gordon, being a UFO and Bigfoot researcher going all the way back to the 1960s. These are people that I could email now, and I know that they would respond very quickly. It's unbelievable what's happened because of monsters. Oh, and there's this. In 2016, thanks to the invitation by Seth to be a part of the uh, recording of the film Boggy Creek Monster, my son and I were able to go down to Falk, Arkansas, to the very locations that are captured in the film, The Legend of Boggy Creek, and to see the creek with our own eyes, and to enter into the Miller County Historical Society and Museum and see a whole wall's worth of Legend of Boggy Creek and Falk monster memorabilia. Absolutely incredible. There's a lot more that I could say on growing up with monsters and then being a monster dad, but I'll leave that for the rest of the episodes that are coming. I do want to address the question though, why now? Why start a new podcast? Why launch Monster Study Group? It's a valid question, and I think I have some pretty good answers. Number one, there was no G-Fest this year, and that was a tremendous blow to a G-Fan like me that's come not only to value the great experience of watching Godzilla films, on a large screen where they belong with other fans who love the genre and applaud when Godzilla appears on screen for the first time. 
And not only because you get to walk into the dealer's room, which is just a cornucopia of collectible items and have the fun of selecting some stuff to come home, but I miss my friends. I miss the people that I've come to know through G-Fest. In our early years of attending, we were told by some folks who had preceded us, at a certain point, G-Fest becomes less about the movies and the toys, and it becomes more of a family reunion. I kind of shrugged at the time, but now I know that they were telling the truth, and that's real. I had no outlet to really talk about Godzilla or Ultraman or Gamera and all the new releases that are coming out. That was taken off of the table this year. And I won't pull any punches. That hurt. I understand that it had to not happen, but that didn't make it any easier. In fact, I coped by creating a little G-Fest program of my own. My family, including my mom and dad, gathered together for a couple consecutive days where we dug into old uh, G-Fest DVDs and films and tried to recreate as best as we could the fun and the escapism that G-Fest provides. And to some degree, it worked. So there's that. Number one is no G-Fest this year left a huge hole. Secondly, this is an unbelievable time to be a fan of Godzilla and giant monsters. I say that because we've got Godzilla films being produced in the present day by both American film companies and Toho, where it all started from. We got Shin Godzilla a couple of years ago, and Shin Godzilla won all the awards in Japan. It did incredible box office, proving that Godzilla is still viable. At the same time, Legendary Pictures is responsible for two major Godzilla films being released, and now a third, Godzilla vs. Kong, waiting in the, in the wings until the appropriate time for its release. Not only that, but Tsuburaya Productions, which is responsible for Ultraman, the giant alien superhero that I was talking about earlier that had been on Detroit television, well, Tsuburaya is pushing into the North American market like never before. They're airing a new series called Ultraman Z on YouTube. I'm going to talk a lot more about that in a future episode. There's a very famous, at least in tokusatsu special effects circles, very famous festival that's held every year, the Ultraman Festival, because of COVID-19. That too is being shown on YouTube this year, made available to fans around the world. At the same time, we have companies such as Mill Creek Entertainment getting the rights for and producing and releasing Blu-ray quality Ultraman series, the likes of which I never dreamed of being able to see, much less own. 
Ultraman series that I only read about, such as Return of Ultraman. Also, uh, Ultraman Ace, Tarot, and Leo coming down the pipe. Of course, the original Ultraman series. Then you have Criterion, a, a very high-level company, uh, takes cinema very seriously, releasing the Showa or the old-school Godzilla films as an entire Blu-ray set, complete with commentaries and a whole disc of bonus materials, including the original Japanese King Kong versus Godzilla. Not to be outdone, Aero Video is releasing all of the Gamera films ever made on Blu-ray this month. So, all of that is to say that a Godzilla, giant monster, giant Japanese superhero fan like myself is somewhat ecstatic to be around at this time in history because we are getting access to series that we never dreamed were possible in packages that are just beautiful, that really honor these films in a special way, in the way that we honored them in our hearts as kids. In this era of uncertainty, I've found myself returning to the imaginative landscape of my youth for some solace and finding it there, finding it there among the rubble of the tiny buildings that had been so carefully constructed, finding that solace on first Monster Land or Monster Island, where Godzilla and Rodan and Minya and Angurus roam about, where I can imagine myself sitting there and watching it all unfold. But finally, why now for Monster Study Group? Well, it's fun. It's just fun. And sharing this interest has given me the gift of friends. I hope we can continue this journey in that spirit. Until next time, for Monster Study Group, this is Mark Mansky.